Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, it is good to see you today on this second Sunday in Advent. When I was a kid, <clears throat> and maybe you've had the same experience, and it's, it's not just confined to childhood, but I remember it well when I was a kid, you would say something like, um, I got a new bike, or I got an A on a test, or I hit a home run. And your friends would be happy about that, but there would always be one wiseacre kid that would say, oh yeah, prove it. Prove it. I used to hate kids like that. Prove it. Well, prove it has been applied to your scriptures. I don't know if you know that, but there have been no shortage of critics that have looked at the Bible and have said, well, that's what it says, but uh, prove it. And that begins early. In fact, it begins with the very birth of Jesus. The critics calling for proof. Prove it. Uh, the opposition, the doubting the story of the Savior, it starts early. It starts with his birth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll be for a few minutes. And there's a whole chorus of people that for a number of years have been saying, we don't think this story is true, the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And most especially, we don't think it happened at the time that it says it happened. If you look at the top of chapter 2, in those days, specific time, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, we'll talk about him in a minute, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We don't know him. We don't know a lot about his situation, except that he seems to have been ordered by the emperor to take a census of everybody under his jurisdiction. The problem arises when the critics have said, well, we have records, historical records, of a census that was taken under Quirinius, the governor of Syria, but it happened six years after the birth of Jesus. So this story, as it's recorded here, the Bible writers are playing fast and loose with the details. And the whole thing is now unreliable because the census happened six years after these guys say it happened. Not long ago, some brand new evidence from dusty, forgotten places in Egypt and Syria was uncovered. In your Bible, it talks about a first census, or when the census was first made under Quirinius. That means that Dr. Luke, when he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he was well aware of what modern critics were not aware of, and that is that there were two censuses taken under Quirinius. And modern evidence has now been found that confirms that, and the critics have had to stand down again. More than a few times, the Scriptures have been proven true to the very smallest and last detail. You are very correct, therefore, in assuming that your Bible can be trusted because it can be. Well, back to the story in Luke chapter 2. Rome had carved up a world more ancient than itself and had established the boundaries for a place they called the province of Syria. The same place that you heard about in the news yesterday and some of the same things that were going on yesterday were going on 2,000 years ago. 
And over the province of Syria, he placed a man named Quirinius. Now, the province of Syria, the Roman province of Syria, included an area called Judea. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's known as Judah, Judea. And from that word, Judea, we get the word Jew. The people who lived in Judea were Jews. And Syria is over Judea. It's part of that province. Now, the census was ordered by Rome, and they did this occasionally, for two reasons. One was to assess taxes. Who owes us money? And the other was to find out which men were eligible for military service. Now, the great Augustus was Caesar at this time. In fact, it says it in your Bible. Augustus Caesar, his real name is Octavian. He took the title Augustus because it sounds so august. He was the adopted son of the great Julius Caesar. And and this particular Caesar, Augustus, had a great talent for being a good administrator. He knew how to run an empire. And it was his idea to call for a census. Now Caesar had left the details of census taking up to each governor to do it however they wanted to do it. They were free to go about it the best way they thought. And so Quirinius had called together and decided that, made the decree that Judea, the land of the Jews, would arrange for it by every head of household, every man returning to his hometown. That's where he would register. That's the way they did it there. Now, the great Caesar sitting in Rome, directing all of the players like a bunch of chess pieces under his power, he could not have imagined what he was doing. And he surely never dreamed that he was doing God's good work. Hundreds of years before, Micah, one of the prophets, had prophesied Bethlehem as the birthplace of Messiah. Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Christ. That's the Greek version of Messiah. It means the anointed one, the crowned one. It means king. Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the king. Micah had said that hundreds of years before. Caesar didn't know that. As Mary and Joseph set out on that 90-mile trip from their home in the north in Nazareth down to Bethlehem, they only knew that the baby that she was carrying was a miracle baby. That's all they knew. They knew that this baby was not conceived by them. They knew that for sure. They knew that better than anybody that was gossiping knew. This baby was not because we got together. This baby is a miracle baby. They knew that. They also knew because they had been told by the angel to name the child Jesus. That means God is Savior. They also knew only because they were told that this miracle baby of theirs, once he was born, somehow he would save people from their sins. But the rest of the details they don't possess. That's all they know as they're going on that trip down to register for the census. They did not know that their baby was the long-expected king, Messiah, Christ. They did not know that. They did not know that their baby was the promised successor to the greatest of Israel's kings, King David. They did not know that. They did not know that this new king is being taken to be born in the city of the old king, 
because Bethlehem is the city of David. That's where David was born. So now the new king is going to be born where the old king was born. But they weren't aware of that. But there's more. Something that Mary and Joseph missed, and in fact, everybody else missed it. All of the bright boys in Jerusalem missed it too. It's in his name. Jesus. God is Savior. Here's what they didn't know. That their Messiah, their King, their Deliverer, their Savior, their Champion, He will not be a conquering hero. But this little baby that she's carrying, once he's born, he is not going to be a charismatic leader, but he will be God Himself. Their Messiah, this baby, is not going to be a prophet. It's not going to be a general. It's going to be God Himself. And He's coming in the flesh, in the flesh of their baby, to be the Savior. Nobody saw that coming. As close as Mary and Joseph were at this point in their life to the voice of God, they spoke with God's emissary, the angel. But as close as they were, they did not know what this trip was all about. They're just going to register for the census. They had no idea what God was doing with their lives. And don't you imagine that's probably the case for most of us? Most of what's happening to us, we have no idea. Now, you know the story. They arrive and there's no place in the inn, but they find a humbler place in the stable that's attached to the inn. And there's no midwife in attendance. There's no good doctor. There's no helpful relatives. Only Mary and Joseph are there to witness the greatest event in the long history of the universe. They are the only ones who see the baby born. And I think that was God's gift to them alone. But the party doesn't stay private. Not for very long. Because on that very same night that the child is born, there are shepherds out in the fields. So let's look at that slate of players for just a minute. For shepherds who stayed out with their flocks day and night, very little had changed since the early years, since centuries before it's recorded in Genesis 46. It says there that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Things had not changed. Not only did the Egyptians find shepherds an abomination, so did everybody else in polite society. Shepherds are an abomination. Shepherds are outcasts. Shepherds are second class, if that. At this point in time, shepherds had little legal standing. They were considered liars of the worst sort. And for that reason, a shepherd's testimony was not acceptable in a court of law. They were wanderers. They were homeless drifters. And everybody's scared of those kind of people. They had a difficult life, shepherds. They didn't have access to the most basic of things like soap and bath water. They stunk all the time. They didn't have access to reliable shelter, these shepherds. But these fellas, with all the negatives 
poverty-stricken as they were, they were also believers. And they held tightly to the promise of the coming Messiah, who once He comes, He's going to rearrange everything in their favor, and He's going to make the last first for a change. They were looking forward to that. They were looking forward to that one who, when He comes, they know He's going to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. They know He's going to lift the oppressed, and they know He's going to set prisoners free from all different kinds of prisons. And to them on that night, a heavenly figure appears. And the entire night sky is on fire. And and that dull landscape out there in the middle of nowhere, it's suddenly aglow with a light that is so bright it washes out all the color from everything. But all of that wasn't the message. That was only the setting for the message. Because when the angel speaks, the first thing he says is, stop being afraid. Your Bible says, if you're a King James user, that these shepherds, when they witnessed all of this bright light, and they see the angel messenger, that they are sore afraid. That's a Hebrew expression. It means they feared a great fear. Their fear was so consuming that they're not afraid only of what they witness, but they're afraid of fear. This is the kind of fear that can strike you dead if you're not careful. And so the word of the angel first is for them, stop being afraid. Not just about those startling events, but he's telling them, stop living with any kind of fear. Because they won't have to fear anymore. And here's why. Look at verse 10 in chapter 2. Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? It's not clear who the messenger is, but the message is crystal clear. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Gabriel, Michael, we don't know. But the message we do get. He says, I'm announcing to you good news for every person in every age. It's news that's so good that it will always produce great joy in those who accept it. He says it's good news. Our word evangel, evangelism, it comes from that word. This this news, this evangel, it comes from that verse 10. The angel, in other words, is gospelizing them with news that the Messiah has finally been born and he is really close. Look at verse 11. That's That's a blockbuster verse, isn't it? In the city of David... There's been born for you a Savior, a Savior. There's been a long time coming who is Christ the Lord. This, 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 this one is coming. God is, is now bringing something to earth, to earth His promised Savior, Christ the Lord. Look at that word Savior. He would deliver people. 
They wouldn't be vulnerable to the enemy of their souls anymore. They wouldn't have to fear death anymore because he would solve the ugly sin problem and he would allow us, he's a savior, to be saved, to be reunited with God. But God's bringing to earth Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's he's God's anointed prophet. He's priest, he's king, he's all of that. And then finally, he's the Lord. That means that he wouldn't only be master, but he's God himself somehow. That's who's been born over there. Now, one angel is not enough for this kind of good news. The stunned shepherds hardly have absorbed what this one angel has told them when when all of Heaven breaks loose and that solitary angel is joined by a sky filled from one end to the other and back again with angels, thousands upon thousands, and they're all singing an anthem of praise and adoration and wonder that God has brought heaven down to people. And right now it's in the act of hovering over those stubbly fields outside little Bethlehem. What what a picture. Heaven breaking out of its boundaries and is spilling over to earth to declare He has arrived. The angel anthem that that blares that night had a single theme. We sang about it. Peace. 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 Not just any kind of peace. Not just a secession of war and fighting and disagreement. But it's a peace that only God can give. It's a peace for those, he says, that are in tune with him, on whom his favor rests. And you know who that is? That's you. His favor rests on you. You see, God's peace can't be undone. Once God gives peace, it can't be undone. Back in Isaiah 700 years before this event, he talks about this one that will be born, and he says of his government, of his administration, of his power, there will be no end. You can't undo the peace of God. The peace of God, Paul says, it passes all comprehension, all understanding. Circumstances can't erase it. Think of a worst-case scenario. Lived out in the life again of Paul. He's in a Roman prison. He's singing his swan song. He knows that his time is short. And very soon his head is going to be removed from his body. And as he waits, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. But he says, but there's laid up for me a crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. I fought a fight. I finished the race. But he's laid up something for me that the Lord will give me in that day. And not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. That man has tremendous peace as he faces the worst case execution on the cross. There's peace even on the cross. Jesus is dying on the cross. It's the worst of the worst. 
All of the sin of all time is beating down upon him. He's become sin. He's the sin offering. He's separated from the Father. And on the cross even, the peace of God never left. As Jesus eases himself into the Father's care, he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. All the devils in hell, all the chaos on earth, cannot undo the peace that Christ gives you when He comes to live in your life. He brings peace. And when He invites you to enter in to His life, you enter into peace. God's peace can't be undone. God's peace is part of a much bigger plan. I, I stumbled on a verse some time ago that I cannot get past. I can't get over I can't absorb it. It's too much. It's too much. Colossians 1, verse 19, verse 20. Listen to this. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, the fullness of God, to dwell in Him, to dwell in Christ. All of God dwells in Him. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace, through the blood of the cross. God's peace is part of a bigger plan. You see, what God is up to, and we're part of it, and our peace is a byproduct of it. But what God is up to is reconciliation of all things. He's going to make everything, everything work. Everything's going to be right. Everything is going to be bought back. Everything is going to be restored. Everything is going to be perfect. That's what he's been working on, and we're part of that. Reconciliation of all things, peace is part of that bigger plan. And God's peace, it's through the cross. That's how we have his peace, because of what he did on the cross. Mentioned it a moment ago, it was in a couple of the songs that we sang, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. You know, God is so good. He is so perfect. He is so absolute. He is so holy. He is so different that when we use words, words don't really even get close. Because words aren't the reality of who He is. He is so other from everything else we know. Paul again says he dwells in unapproachable light. He's so different. That on our own we can know almost nothing about who he really is on our own. We can only know what he is by what he reveals about himself. And Jesus Christ, God come to earth, is the fullest expression of who He is. Back to Isaiah. In the ninth chapter, sixth verse, 700 years before the event takes place, He sees this birth that these shepherds rush off to witness. It appears to Isaiah in the ninth chapter, the sixth verse, who this is, and he, he says he will be a wonderful counselor. Now don't think of, of a counselor like a psychologist in the couch where you're telling him all of your woes. 
and how mean your daddy was. But wonderful counselor means he's a strategic thinker. He's a strategic advisor. He's a mighty God. That this one who's coming will be an everlasting father. And he will, in fact, be the prince of peace. You see. Peace. It's been a while back now, but one of our, one of our church members left us and went to Christ. I was thinking the other day how many people that belong to Fairfax are in heaven. There's a bunch now. But it's been a while back that Keith Chapman went to be with Christ. She, um, to, to my way of thinking, and for those who knew her well, <clears throat> she is the definition of long-suffering. Wonderful old Anglo-Saxon word, long-suffering. She suffered long. Forgive me for saying it, but her, her family bled her. Racked up bills imposed on her in ways that shouldn't have happened. She raised not only her grandchildren, she raised her great-grandchildren. And got that much thanks for it. A lot of grief. And again, those who know her, she would often begin to talk or pray, and she would weep because things were so heavy. And a number of people here tried, but there was only so much we could do to lift that. Again, forgive me if you think I'm being harsh, but they were parasites. Up to the very end, taking. I went to see her the day before she passed away. And she was still very conscious. She knew the time was close, and she was very happy about that. And I said, Keith, what do, you want to, what do you want people to remember about this part of your life? Because we could remember other parts of her life. So what, these last few days, what do you want us to remember? She said, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Believe me, there was plenty of chaos around her, but she was at peace. The next day, I was off to do something else, and I felt like you need to go see her. And so I left somebody else waiting, and I went to see her, and I got there just as she was passing into the presence of Christ. And what I saw on her face, well, let me tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see anxiety. I didn't see worry. I didn't see difficulty. But I saw peace. As she passed into the arms of Christ, peace. That's because of the Prince of Peace. He gives a peace that nothing can undo. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.